0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: What we're taught as children about ourselves, our families, and our country is often a kind of abridged version of the truth. Lots gets left out. Some things are miscast or straight out untrue. Climate activist and author Bill McKibben has written a new book that traces his journey from his young suburban boyhood to the realization that so much of what we're taught just isn't sufficient. He joins today to talk about that journey. Next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Nobody is perfect. Every day we go about our lives and see the imperfections of the systems and the people around us. We're sometimes let down by our own loved ones, and our close friends. And they, like us, make mistakes. They make big ones, they make small ones. This is true of everybody. But for some reason, we're not often taught to believe these same things about a lot of figures in American history, particularly America's founders. If your education looked like mine, you were told that people like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin were practically superhuman. They didn't lie. They always acted virtuously on behalf of their friends and their family and their country. They were almost perfect. But, of course, that's not true. It couldn't possibly be true. They like us were complicated. They did some really good things. They all did some really awful things as well. They did things to protect the ideas and the ideals of democracy. And they also did things that made democracy almost impossible. They did things that were actively harmful and excluded so many people from the democratic project. Our main struggle, even today, is to reconcile with the profound mistakes that they made in founding this country. One of the leaders of the modern movement to stop climate change, Bill McKibben, also had this sort of childhood education. He was taught that America and his hometown of Lexington, Massachusetts, they were a part of an unmitigated good, a shining beacon on a hill that did no wrong, one that allowed for equal opportunity and promoted justice and peace, not just at home, but all around the world. Well, like a lot of us, Bill McKibben has started to reframe that thinking. Looking back He realizes that he wasn't taught a lot of things about American history and that the erasure of certain aspects of that history may have led to some awful consequences today, including wealth and racial inequality, the warming climate, the growing democratic dysfunction that we all live with. To talk about all this and how Bill came to realize the more complex realities of American history and American present, I'm really pleased to welcome Bill McKibben to Detroit Today. It is really great to have you here with us.
2: Well, what a pleasure to get to join you.
1: Yes. So as I said, you grew up believing that America was amazing, that it was an uncomplicated good in the world, let's start with where those ideas come from, where they started from you, and how they come to rest, really, uh, in this place where you're raised, Lexington, Massachusetts.
2: Yes, well, as I say in the book, uh, Lexington, um, <laughs> Lexington kind of was the you know its business was telling that story, and in fact. My business was telling that story. I was in high school, a, a guide for tourists on the battle green, uh, the first battle of the American Revolution. And so I told the story over and over again of those brave Minutemen standing up to the British. And it is a wonderful story. I mean, uh, Viewed one way, it's the first battle against colonialism and imperialism that the world had seen, uh, a fight against the biggest empire on the planet by a small group of of farmers who uh, came together to stand up to the british um and so lexington styles itself the birthplace of american liberty but as with many other stories we've of course learned a lot more about america in the last in the 5 decades since i was giving those tours and i'll give you just one example to give mm-hmm. you a Sense of how palpable this is. Um, I was back rereading Paul Revere's account of his ride out to Lexington to warn that the British were coming. Uh, his account is the document that um, that Longfellow used to write his iconic poem. Mm-hmm. And this is an account that uh, Revere writes twenty years after the fact, and so he's describing. Uh, uh, fooling the British officers on horseback and galloping around them and so on and so forth. And he, he says at one point, describing this action, he says, uh, this all took place uh, right where Mark hung in chains. And that's the only reference to that. And and, and as far as I know, almost no one had ever noticed it because it took a lot of detective work to figure out what he was talking about. But here's the story. And it's a difficult one, a sad and terrible one. Uh, 20 years before the revolution, there had been an enslaved person in Boston named Mark Codman. He had a particularly brutal master, uh, and so he poisoned him in hopes that he'd end up with someone who wasn't quite as brutal. Uh, He was found, and instead of being tried for murder, he was tried for treason. And after his body was drawn and quartered, it was hung in an iron cage, a, a gibbet uh where it stayed hanging in public above the town common for at least 40 years um um till it had become a just a landmark that revere could absolutely take for granted that everyone would know where he was talking about when he mentioned it in passing Mm. that puts a different spin uh on the sons of liberty uh on the sense of precisely who and what the american revolution was for and about yes and uh, so that was a, you know, that was that was one of the things that uh, really got me going here, sort of thinking more deeply about where I'd grown up, not so much Lexington in particular, or not just Lexington in particular, but in the American suburb, uh, in the place that that was the greatest embodiment of mass prosperity that the world has ever seen, um, and that has left behind all kinds of of
1: uh, uh trails. Yeah. So so I I I do want to go back to the time when you're growing up in Lexington which of course is is centuries after these really important historical things happen there and and talk about the role that uh, your schooling played in in all of this, and and the reason I want to talk about that is because we're having a, this spectacular argument right now in our nation about schools and what their job is in terms of teaching history, how they ought to reconcile, uh, you know, the the, the 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 good parts of history with the ugly parts, um, and I I, I want to. I want you to give our listeners a sense of what you were taught and how it was contextualized in Lexington at a time when people were not really raising a lot of these questions.
2: Well, I think actually I was very lucky. Lexington had a tremendous school system, often ranked among the best in the country. That's why my parents had moved there when we moved to the suburbs. And I, I don't. I truthfully don't remember that much about the actual content of the curriculum, but we were taught to think critically. Um, you know, I, I learned the tools that turned me into a uh, writer, and 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 so on. And those involved the ability to investigate and to mm. think about things. And those were the tools I use to this day, including in writing in this book. But I think probably, at least for me, more important. uh, I'll get back to those questions about schools because I think they're important, but for me, more important was the kind of education that went on in the town. And I I tell the story at the beginning of the book about Mm -hmm. two incidents that happened a few weeks apart that turn out to have been very exemplary. Uh, The first seemed in its way very positive. Um, uh, This was at the height of the fight against the Vietnam War in 1971. And because of Lexington Green's historic provenance, uh, a group called the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, led by a lanky, handsome young lieutenant named John Kerry, later our Secretary of State, uh, 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 wanted to camp on the Green as part of their protest against that war. And the town fathers wouldn't let them. They called in the police to arrest them, and so hundreds of townspeople, including my very mild-mannered father went down to get arrested with them, the biggest civil disobedience incident in Massachusetts history. Um, That, since I was 10 or 11, that made a big impression on my dad getting busted. And and I think what it symbolized for me was the idea that, you know, people really were working hard to make uh, this world a better place. This came, you know, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, the height of the anti-war movement, right after the first Earth Day. As the women's movement was accelerating uh, on and on, the second thing, though, that happened at the almost the same time, was that there was the first proposal for uh, affordable housing development in Lexington. It would have been a hundred units of multifamily housing and and it was quite consciously designed to begin integrating a place that was segregated, not by um, uh, edict. And in fact, it was a fairly liberal place. They voted for George McGovern, of all things, but uh, uh, but segregated by money. Um, um, it was expensive town already. And so everybody in town, all the officials, were all behind this plan to build uh, affordable housing. And uh, the churches were all behind it, and everyone in public was in favor of it. But then they had a referendum, and in the voting booth, people in Lexington voted down this plan two to one, um, which showed very much the other emerging side that would get stronger as that decade of the 70s went on and would culminate in the election of of Ronald Reagan uh, and the assertion that we really didn't have to look out for each other, uh, that our job was just each to get rich ourselves. So that was, I think, uh, uh, for me, those were the educational things that mattered most. But you're right, we're now in a fight about um for instance uh teaching about r- racial history of America. And my guess is that people are not really concerned that their children will be made to feel guilty uh uh for the past. M- 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 my <laughs> my guess is that there's a lot of people who feel a little guilty themselves and mm. don't want their kids bringing it up in their face every night over dinner. Um <laughs> And 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 that's because, you know, that wealth gap because of things like that referendum in that town, that wealth gap between black Americans and white Americans is wider now than it was 50 years ago, uh, which is pretty astonishing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking with Bill McKibben. Uh, he is a climate activist and author. Uh, first, first was uh, the author of one of the first books to warn the general public. Uh, about climate change. We're going to talk a little later about uh, his work on climate change and bringing attention to it. But his latest book is The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Uh, We're talking about the ways in which uh, in this country people are raised to believe things about uh, this country and our history that um, are highly abridged, I think is maybe the most generous way to put it. Uh, They leave out a lot of things about our founding and our founders. Uh, They leave out uh, many of the complications of democracy and freedom in the American context. Of course, we are having a really spirited and at times bitter national conversation right now about how those things uh, are taught in schools and how we ought to reckon with the symbols of our history and make them more inclusive, Uh, we want to hear from you during this conversation as well. Have you been wrestling with the complexities of our history as Americans? Uh, Do you see America as a more complicated place than maybe you used to, both more beautiful and more tragic uh, than perhaps you were taught it was. Uh, How did you get to that place? Uh, Assuming that you were taught some romanticized version of American history, how did you come to change your mind about what America really is? Uh, Do you have a balanced but positive outlook uh, for this country, or do you have a more negative view of who we are and and what we stand for as always the number here on the phones is three one three five seven seven one oh one nine that's three one three five seven seven one oh one nine you can also go to the wdet facebook page and put comments there or you can go to twitter and hashtag detroit today and uh, we can work you into the conversation uh so so bill i i do want to talk more about this turn uh that that you make and um uh and why and when uh, that happens as you said you were taught uh, to be a critical thinker and that uh, to to kind of question things at what point do you start to say hey there's there's something missing here and then there's something Perhaps not entirely truthful about uh, about the way things have been rendered for me. What were the what were the sort of uh, I guess inciting moments or acts that uh, that led you there? Well,
2: for me, the the great turning point in American history in our American history in my lifetime was the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, and uh, you know I. I've, People forget now, uh just among other things, what a racially charged uh um campaign that was mm-hmm. he began his campaign i i I was only twenty, but I was actually covering that campaign uh as a journalist um, he began his campaign he launched it in the town of Philadelphia, Mississippi
1: yes in the which was county
2: the town where those, mm-hmm. there's right there's three. Uh, civil rights workers had been killed in 1963, which was only, you know, 17 years in the rearview mirror. Uh, it was a pretty strong signal to everyone, a pretty strong dog whistle, that he was going to appeal to the the worst, not the best of America's history. And, and you know, I, for me, much of much of the kind of illumination (laughs) over the years came from my my work, which has primarily been around this most existential of challenges, climate change. And they're the same kind of thing. I mean, I began, I wrote the first book about global warming back when I was still in my 20s, The End of Nature. And when I wrote it, my assumption was that that we were in an argument about climate change and so we should write more books and have more uh journal articles and more symposiums and that once we won the argument our leaders would do the right thing and 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 we'd go to work on this biggest challenge because why wouldn't we it took me 10 years more until i was darn near 40 um to understand that we had won this argument there was no doubt about the science we were just losing the fight because mm. the fight wasn't about data, or reason, or, or uh, wisdom. <laughs> it was about money and power, which is what fights are usually about. And the fossil fuel industry was winning that fight. And that's when I started organizing. You know, we, I, we helped found the first big global grassroots climate movement, uh, uh, and you know, ended up going to jail myself a number of times, and so on and so forth. Um, because it was becoming clear to me that our system didn't work as rationally and well as it should and that uh uh and i'm afraid that <laughs> convictions only grown over time because as you as you point out we've now reached a level of political dysfunction that makes uh i'm afraid the founders look considerably less wise than we might once have thought the constitution that they left us uh, seems to have turned into, at least the way it's interpreted by the Supreme Court, as a kind of suicide pact. Mm-hmm. And and so we're, you know, <laughs> there have been a lot of revelations for a lot of us over time. It doesn't stop us from working hard. i am you know, just found it now that I'm an old person <laughs> in my 60s. I've just helped found this new group called Third Act. that's organizing people over the age of 60 for progressive action on climate and democracy. Because I haven't given up, um, by any means, but I, I I think very much that we need to be quite cognizant about where we are.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh when we come back, we're gonna continue this conversation with climate activist and author and journalist Bill McKibben about uh his book about reconsidering the stories that were told about America and American history Uh, we want to get to you on the phones and on social media Tim in Detroit uh, Brad in Rochester Hills we'll start with you on the phones Uh, if you want to join them 313-577-1019 is the number here that's 313-577-1019 we've also got uh, some social media comments on Twitter and on Facebook Uh, you can leave them there and we'll work you into the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
0: WDET is your place for open dialogue.
3: The music you love.
0: Real news and in-depth analysis.
3: And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit.
0: 1019 WDET is your public radio station.
1: Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Our guest today is Bill McKibben, climate activist and author of the first book to warn the general public about climate change, Uh, his book, in 1989, The End of Nature did that. Uh, His latest book is The Flag, the Cross, and the Station Wagon. A graying American looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened. Uh, He's talking with us about the mythification, I guess, of America and American history that uh, so many of us experienced as young people. We're told about the heroism of America's founders and made to believe that in many ways, they and the country they founded were perfect. Uh, Of course, uh, as we get older and certainly as the country moves forward, uh, we're all really reconsidering all of those things and learning more about what really happened and trying to put things in greater context. Um, We want to talk to you during this conversation as well. Colin, tell us if you've been wrestling with the complexities of the American story. Uh, Do you see this as a more complicated place, a more complicated narrative than you did when you were young or than you were taught when you were in school? Uh, And what does that mean? How does that make you think about the country that we all live in together now? Are you more or less optimistic about it by knowing more of the truth? Uh, Are you... Uh, maybe more or less pessimistic about our future as you watch uh, the, the spirited and sometimes bitter conversations, arguments about how we ought to tell the American story. Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we can work you into the conversation. Uh, let's start today on the phones with uh, Brad in Rochester Hills. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey,
3: hey good morning, Steve. It's always mm-hmm. great to hear from you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm a in a perfect agreement and harmony with the, uh, your guest today in regards to uh, how America and the state of the condition it is in. Uh, uh, From what uh, he was uh, taught to be a critical thinker about how to look at America, there's a a lot of uh, what we should have been taught in our public school systems when we were going through the the grade school and the high school system that was uh, left out or taken out of the uh, uh, history books. And right now I'm reading a book by Larry Schweikart and Michael Allen It's called A Patriot's History of the United States. Columbus's great discovery to America's age of entitlement. It goes in heavy detail, and and they're heavy hitters. Uh, They take uh, it all the way through. Uh, It was recently updated as early as about three years ago, and it really goes through a lot of uh, what... And they go uh, a little bit further than what none of us uh, were taught previously. Hmm.
1: Brad, I really appreciate uh, the the call and and the reference there. Um, I I have not I have not read that uh, that book. Um, Bill McKibben, react to what uh, Brad's saying here and and to that text, A Patriot's History of the United States. Don't know the book,
2: um, but I do know that there's been a great deal of very good uh, history writing in the last couple of decades. There's a powerful book. That uh, uh, I reference in the um, in, in the flag to cross the station wagon uh, that focuses on on George Washington and uh, and his career as a slaveholder. And it's a fascinating story, but complex one in certain ways, and not complex in others. Um, and uh, you know we're learning more and more of this history that some of the best historians in the country are doing the research to figure out much more about where our history came from and uh, I mean the, the tragedy I guess is that it often gets reduced to kind of bumper stickers uh, mm-hmm. one way or to other um, one of the things that I, I think I mean people people get up in arms about whatever they're worried about teaching kids in school and call it critical race theory or whatever I mean I actually don't think there's any I mean, critical race theory as something that graduate students of law schools talk about. Uh, what we're talking about in, in elementary school and high school is just teaching history, history, telling people the story of what actually went on. And kids are perfectly capable, in my experience as a teacher, of understanding what that means and understanding that you can't always hold people responsible for you know, doing what everybody else was doing when they, were, uh, uh, when they were alive. On the other hand, that doesn't excuse it, and it, it helps us have a much richer sense of American history. I think that one reason we're so resistant sometimes to talking about this, uh, especially the racial history of America, is that it leads inevitably to the very uncomfortable question of whether or not we should be paying some kind of reparations mm-hmm. for that history. I, I think we should, um, but I think that's why so many people want to try and head off this conversation before it happens, because eventually you get to the point. I mean, take take that town that where I grew up, or I described. You know, if you had enough money to buy into Lexington uh, at the right moment, you did really well. Mm-hmm. The house that my parents bought for $30,000 in 1970, that would be about $200,000 in today's money, sold last year for a million dollars. So that $800,000 gain was just the effect of being in the right place at the right time. But there were lots of people who couldn't be in that right place at that right time uh, because, well, if you were black... You were excluded from things like the GI Bill, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so you weren't able to make the money that could have gotten you in the suburbs, even a suburb that would have let you come in the door if you had enough money like Lexington, much less the places that redlined and, you know, passed covenants and things to keep themselves white. And, and so, you know, there's a debt owed. Just in the same way that there's all of us uh, in this country m- end up owing a debt to the rest of the world for the carbon that we've poured into the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that suburbanization of America, in which Detroit played no small part, since the car was its, you know, engine literally.
1: The car and the freeway. Uh, uh, yeah, right. That's
2: right. Uh, you know that suburbanization put more carbon into the atmosphere than anything else, even more than the industrialization of China, which is the second on the list. Um, U.S., 4% of us who live here are responsible for 25% of the carbon in the atmosphere. So when there's a huge flood or a fire a storm someplace, uh, you know, it, we bear responsibility. By contrast, the entire continent of Africa which is being hit harder than any place else by climate change. The entire continents only put about two percent of the carbon in the atmosphere. Uh uh so there are real debts. Happily we're a rich country, so we have money to pay those debts if we want to. The question is, do we want to? And I guess that's one of the reasons we write books is to try and persuade people that we do want to do uh these kind of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carl on Twitter says, McKibbin nails it, replacing the great society ethos of the 70s with the I'm getting mine to hell with everybody else doctrine of the 80s, heralded by Reagan Bush and the Willie Horton ad, uh, undergirds much of what's wrong. With America, common interest went out the window. Uh, Deep East Side on Twitter says, the U.S. was founded by genocidal patriarchal slave owners. Ranted about freedom by day and then raped underage slaves by night. The Constitution was designed to keep them in power. It has worked well, save for one eight year long hiccup. Uh, I'm out of varnish, b uh, Side says. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Cass in Southfield, welcome to the show. Uh, hi. Hi, are how are you? Okay? Yeah, go I'm ahead. Good.
0: Um, I was just kind of thinking about this like education piece and i went to a suburban school as well like good suburban school in michigan and i went through advanced history courses all through my education and it actually wasn't until my senior year of high school that i took like a civil war course specifically that we even touched on reconstruction Hmm. and i feel like even in my education, which is pretty good, that was glossed over and glossing over this period of history really keeps us from understanding where we are today, right? Like it was a very important part in like what established the electoral college and how we currently vote. So I don't know. Yeah. I did take my rest of my comment off there. Of
2: yeah. Uh, class, I, I think that's just right. And, and that's why, among other things, this 1619 project was so important. <laughs> It really highlight. It it cast a light on the parts of the history that we hadn't been focusing on, and and that's why it annoyed people too, (laughs) you know, Um, (laughs) some people because you know it it complicated it it complicated a uh, simplistic picture. So kids are completely capable of dealing with this. The question is, are adults? Um, And I, I, to go back to what one of the people was saying on Twitter about the sort of '70s and the '80s, and the, uh, you know, I think that that analysis that your, your caller has is just right. Um, if you look back at these Supreme Court decisions of the last month, that, uh, to my mind, are so hideously wrong—the ones that let us, you know, increase the ability to carry guns anywhere you want, the ones that deprive women of the right to choice. Uh, the one that that uh, neuters the Clean Air Act and the EPA. These are all aimed at things that happened in that very short window of time, uh, from say the Voting Rights Act of 1965 to the decision about Roe v. Wade in 1973, including the Gun Control Act of 1968, uh, the Clean Air Act of 1971, uh, on and on and on. And the the right has, you know became alarmed at those things and set out on a very successful 50-year mission to try and and change America back to what they thought it was. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm afraid that that's close to succeeding, and it's one of the reasons that we really need to be standing up right now in defense of the America that perhaps those of us of a certain age thought that we lived in or thought that we were
1: building. Yeah. I mean there is this this irony in uh in the the reaction to things like the 1619 project uh which presumes that the information in that project and the insistence that we confront the information in that project is somehow Tearing down uh, uh, this country, or or tearing down uh, the idea of the American experiment, and in, and in fact, what it's doing is is expanding the idea of of that experiment to include uh, the truth first of all, but also to be more inclusive of people who were not thought of uh, when that experiment was was founded, and um, and it is very difficult, I think, for people to, uh, to 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 do that and not feel sort of personally attacked. I guess um, you know. Uh, I, 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 I think a lot of the, the reaction to this is about people, as you said, uh, feeling like they're being called to account for things that that they did. But but I don't even think you have to quite go that far. It really is just uh, calling to account the things that were done to set the nation in motion and and trying to 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 put them in in a, a better light to 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 say these things weren't perfect and these ideas were not executed in a perfect way uh, and this information helps us get to that perfection it is not taking us further away from
2: it well- Yes, and it's it's always worth noting that um, we're not perfect either. Uh, right. You know, if we're if we're lucky enough to have historians around two hundred years from now, they're going to look back at some of the stuff that we did and uh, wonder about it. They may question why it was that we decided we all needed to, even though we'd been told about climate change, that we all needed to drive semi-military vehicles wherever they went and you know build ever bigger houses and so on and so forth so uh, you know history is history is history it it reveals and it should uh and we need to be able to deal with that and then deal with the implications of it Mm -hmm. and and uh, as i say uh, it's it's not that the... I mean, I disagree with the person who wrote in just saying the Founding Fathers were nothing but a bunch of rapists. Uh, that, that seems reductionist to me as well. Hmm. Um, the point is that we need to understand um, where we came from, and more than understand it, we need to make right on the things that went wrong to the degree that we can. A way to think about it is... I think that we're still deciding what American history means. And if we rose to the occasion, say, and decided that it was time to pay reparations to people who had been harmed, then that makes a reasonable case that that American history is is, is that the American experiment was not such a bad idea, you know, that we were that it that it brought us to the point where we could make gestures like that. If we don't, then it's a then you know, we just continue on down this same path that we're headed down at the moment. Well, I mean, look where it ends up. It ends up with violent fools storming the capital of the United States and mm-hmm. killing policemen in order to, you know, keep their sluggish
1: boss in power. Yeah. yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, climate activist, author, and journalist Bill McKibben. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social media. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, the comments there, and we'll work you into the show. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Right today on 1019 wdet stephen henderson and as always thanks for tuning in our guest right now is bill mckibben a climate activist an author and a journalist his latest book is the flag the cross and the station wagon a graying american looks back at his suburban boyhood and wonders what the hell happened uh, we're talking about the ways in which we're taught about uh, american history and America, uh, the things that get left out often when we're young and told about this country and its history and its founding, and the ways in which we kind of come to reckon with those things as adults, uh, as the nation uh, matures toward coming to reckon with more of those things. We want to hear from you as well. Uh, Give us a call and uh, let us know how you think of, uh, of this country, how you... Uh, see the complexities of American history and how you came to see those complexities. Uh, Are they things that you had to discover on your own as an adult, or were they things that uh, were included in the way that you were taught? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, uh, uh, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll include you in the conversation that way. Before we get back to our listeners, Bill, I do want to talk about the, the nexus between your work on climate change and uh, the story that you're telling in this book. You've referenced it a few times and talked about how <clears throat> the denial uh, part of of this dynamic is at work in both places and and that the consequences on the climate side uh, could could be even more catastrophic from uh, a real world and physical uh, dimension because of the things that uh, that continue to go wrong and that we continue to pretend that we don't have any, any control over.
2: Right, we're in a very difficult place obviously right now because we've waited a long time to take action on climate. And the reason we waited a long time Uh, was because people were telling us stories that weren't true. We now know from great investigative reporting that the fossil fuel industry knew everything there was to know about climate change back in the 1980s. People have found the memos and things in the archives. A company like Exxon, uh, its scientists were telling its executives what climate change was, and predicting with incredible accuracy in 1980 what the temperature was going to be in 2020. They knew what was coming, and the executives believed them. Exxon started building all its drilling rigs higher to compensate for the rise in sea level they knew was coming. They began plotting out what parts of the Arctic they were going to lease once they'd melted it. But what they didn't do was tell any of the rest of us across this industry Uh, they began this building this big architecture of deceit and denial and disinformation that kept us locked for 30 years in this completely pointless debate about whether or not global warming was real, a a debate, remember, that both sides knew the answer to at the beginning. It's just one of them was willing to lie, and it turned into the most consequential lie in human history because it cost us the one thing we don't have, time. Now we have to... You know, the scientists tell us we have to cut emissions in half by 2030, which is seven years away. If we'd had 40 years to do that, then we we might have had a better chance than we have at the moment. So that, that same kind of um, unwillingness to face the truth because it gets in the way, in this case, in the way of making money, in the case of American history, well, some of that, and also in the way of just feeling the way we want to feel these are these are dangerous things, and they come from the same period of time at least to to some degree remember it was uh, jimmy carter in his last budget before his election who said you know set wanted to set america on a course to getting twenty percent of its power from the sun by the year two thousand if he'd actually been able to carry through on that uh, we'd be in a completely different place now instead ronald reagan Told us we were just going to drill our way out of this, and he climbed up on the roof of the White House and took down the solar panels that Jimmy Carter had put up there. Mm. Uh, he set us back decades in this work. So this same time period turns out to be really important, and and you know our kids are going to pay an almost unbearable price, one that we're beginning to sense in these endless string of
1: forest fires and droughts and floods and storms and so on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Tim in Detroit. Tim, what's on your mind?
0: Oh, uh, hi, Steve. Hi, uh-huh. Bill. Uh, the global warming situation. They never talk about the major cause, which is overfishing. The hmm. fish, uh, all the pollution combined, all all the uh, uh, everything is like uh, maybe twenty five percent that comes from uh, clear foresting and uh, um, pollution from industry. The ocean provides 67% of the carbon sink in the world, but that's because of the fish. And meanwhile, uh, 70% of the fish, or I'm sorry, 90% of the fish, the eating fish, are have been depleted since 1970. Huh. And we're going to be fished out, they say, in twenty, thirty years. That means extinction, but they don't even talk about it because it'll affect the bottom line of a major industry.
1: Yeah, Tim, um, it, we'll just, go ahead. Yeah. So, I, Tim, I, I'm glad you called and, and made that point, Bill McKibben. That's something I've heard here yeah. and there about you know overfishing and the role that it plays in, in climate change. But I want to give you a, a chance to respond to, to Tim's idea here that oh. that's the the linchpin.
2: Well, uh, overfishing is a serious problem that I've gotten to write about over the years in uh, places like Newfoundland or, or elsewhere, but it's not what's causing climate change. Uh, the science of what's causing climate change is abundantly clear. When you burn coal and gas and oil, you put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The molecular structure of CO2 traps heat that would otherwise radiate back out to space. We've known the basic, you know, had a basic understanding of the physics of this since the 1850s, and since the late 1980s, there's been no doubt about that it's happening and happening fast and raising the temperature. Uh, so, there are other contributors. The second biggest contributor, about 20% of climate change, is the deforestation. That's uh, uh, and, and mostly at the service of uh, livestock raising agriculture. Um, but the single job, number one, is to replace coal, gas, and oil with sun and wind and batteries. The good news is, uh, and people in Detroit have a first-hand seat uh, to watch this as the car industry retools, the good news is we have the technology to do this. The price of power from the sun and the wind has dropped 90% in the last decade. Not everybody knows this, but that may be the most important economic fact on the planet, because it, it, it means that this is now the cheapest power on Earth, and that if it weren't for the vested interests that want to keep us burning coal and gas and oil, we'd be able to make a quite rapid transition to renewable energy. It's no longer uh, 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 some pie-in-the-sky thing, just the opposite. Uh, it, well, I guess actually it almost literally is pie-in-the-sky uh, 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 cheap energy that comes straight from the fact that the good Lord was kind enough to hang a big ball of burning gas 93 million miles away.
1: <laughs> uh, again, Tim, uh, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go to Denise in Franklin. Denise, welcome to the show. Hi,
3: this is Hi.
1: Denise. Can you hear uh-huh. me? I, I sure can. Go ahead.
3: Okay, great. I wanted to go back to the discussion you were having about education and civil rights Mm -hmm. and the history of our country. A few years ago, I heard a speaker from a Birmingham Civil Rights Museum say half the truth is a full lie. Hmm. And that powerful statement has stuck with me ever since period. It's not just that we are ill-informed, but that we think that we know the full story, which makes the lack of education even more dangerous. Hmm. And I've, certainly that would apply to the climate science part of this, too. Yeah. So I just wanted to put that out there. Half the truth is a full lie.
1: Yeah, Denise, I really appreciate I you telling and saying that. Go ahead. Beautifully Bill. put. I think it's beautifully put, and it really gets
2: at the um, heart of this fight that we're seeing now over uh, teaching about race in schools. Uh, all people are trying to do, I think, uh, when they introduce things like the 1619 project, is uh, let young people grow up with an actual understanding of, of what our history is about. And that doesn't mean that you have to hate the country or anything like it. Um, um, it just means that you that, that that I mean that's what history is. We we try to tell the truth about uh, what happened in ancient Rome or in the french revolution or or or, or whatever else and there's no reason that we shouldn't be telling uh everything that we know about what happened in this country too
1: yeah yeah uh let's quickly go to john on the east side john i've only got about a minute left but wanted to get you in here hello so i was i was
2: wondering if bill could talk about the correlation to like the uh senate and the philip or the uh The uh, electoral college to keep uh, all people down.
1: Hmm. Yeah, these these minority provisions uh, that that are in the constitution and other other laws that that give political minorities incredible power. A bill, like I said, I've only got about thirty or forty seconds. Yeah, well, I
2: mean. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it turns out that it was a bad idea to design a system so that Wyoming has the same number of senators as California. Since yeah. neither Wyoming nor California existed at the start, <laughs> I guess it's, uh, you know there's this only a certain amount you can do to, to blame them. But it's, it's why it's important to talk about this stuff so we can change it and and do sensible things. The good news is that people sense this. Those Supreme Court decisions, they weren't just wrong, they were incredibly unpopular. Mm -hmm. People want to change, and so now we've got to figure out if if we can bring majorities to bear in order to do things like get rid of the filibuster and make progress. We're working hard on that at Third Act. If you Mm -hmm. know people over the age of 60, have them join us at thirdact.org. We have our big national call tonight, in fact, uh, our Mm -hmm. monthly call with thousands, tens of thousands of people on board. Uh, even if you're older, it doesn't mean you can't play a huge role in, uh, yeah, uh, in helping, well, helping get back to where we were back yeah. in
1: those days. Yeah. Bill McKibben, wonderful to have you here to talk uh, about American history and about uh, your new book. Thanks for joining. Thank you, sir. It's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about possibly the most heated congressional race in Michigan, and then talk about the Pro-Choice Ballot Initiative.